Hey guys, welcome to episode 123, part one of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we hope you're all doing well. We wanted to start off by saying thank you, as always, to all of our listeners for everything you're doing for us. Whether it's leaving a review, donating to Patreon, or just listening, we're so grateful for everything, and it's really a privilege to be a part of this community. We encourage you to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and of course, that's at True Crime Couple. And if you would like to join our Patreon, that's patreon.com slash truecrimecouple. We have 64 additional episodes waiting for you to listen to, and um, with an extra two released every month. And we will thank all of our new Patreon subscribers at the end of this episode. So if that's you, please stay tuned for um, after the show is over. And before I begin, I just also want to recognize the sources that are going to be used for part one and part two. I know we're doing another two-parter, but I think it's actually kind of good because then you do kind of get us two weeks in a row and then that third week. That's true. It's almost like we release every week when we do a two-parter, so it is kind of exciting. Which is something we wish that we could do. I know. (laughs) (laughs) So um, the sources that I used are, of course, the amazing journalists from the New York Times and the New York Post. But most importantly, the amazing book that was written by Kieran Crowley, it's called Sleep My Little Dead. And Crowley was actually a journalist at the time this was happening and actually kind of plays a role within the case. So it's a beautifully written book. And if you are into this case, I highly suggest you you reading that book. I made sure to not give, you know, all of the details are too much away because we do want to recognize our sources and for people to to read the books that we get our information from. Okay. John, I'm actually glad you got your chair fixed because it's going to be a long episode and a good one. You know what? I actually wanted to tell everybody the status of my chair <laughs> because I know I made a big deal about it. <laughs> but just to let everyone know, it was covered under warranty. I got some additional parts and I had to disassemble the chair and put it back together. But we are square we are perfect. All right, good. I, people were concerned about your chair. I know. So, uh, so this that's just an update. Everything's <laughs> good to go. And the best part, now with the new parts, it's not squeaking anymore. That's phenomenal. Because sometimes, guys, and I'm, I apologize, I do move a lot. Like, I feel like I have, like, restless leg syndrome. You're fidgety. I'm very fidgety during the podcast. So every once in a while, there was just squeaking that I was hearing in the audio, and I, I apologize. So... At least we got that squared away. So now no more squeaking. Yeah, and no John, more squeaking. John, 100% comfortable. Yes. <laughs> All right, so are you ready? I'm ready. In an article written for Psychology Today in 2017, criminology professor Dr. Scott Vaughn addressed our curious fascination with serial killers. Why do these larger-than-life celebrity monsters have such a stronghold on American and world culture? He argued three points. First, it's scary. And as adults, we can no longer experience that fear that we did as children, whether it's us thinking that monsters are real, like the monsters in our closets are real, or that a horror movie is terrifying. Because as adults, we know that it's it's fake and that there's no monster in your closet. But serial killers are those monsters and they are real. They allow us to experience true terror that we haven't experienced since we were children. Like Richard Ramirez really was in your closet waiting for you to go to sleep. And forget the Sawyer family, 
Jeffrey Dahmer had some intense recipes for cooking humans. So there it is. You know, like we love that fear and it kind of brings us back to childhood. So whether it's kind of like a positive or a negative, everyone likes kind of going back. It's like a nostalgic feeling, that feeling of true terror. Absolutely. And the second point is that we are trying to understand something that's outside the realm of our comprehension. Boone stated, The average person who has been socialized to respect life and also possesses the normal range of emotions such as love, shame, pity, and remorse cannot comprehend the work of a pathological mind that would compel one to abduct, torture, rape, kill, engage in necrophilia, or even eat another human being. The incomprehensibility of such actions just drive society to understand why these serial killers do these horrible things to other people who are often complete strangers to them. Because like, I think that it's easy for us to say, I understand someone building up a rage or someone killing in the moment, but the cold heartedness of killing someone you don't even know. Yeah, I exactly. Like you can't, your brain can't bring it to a place where you would just do that. Exactly. Like, I feel like people will say like, if someone was attacking my family, I could kill somebody to defend them. Like our brains could go there. Right. Not saying everyone would say that, or that's just like a normal thing, but like we feel like we would do things to defend ourselves or to defend our loved ones. But that is, like Bond says, outside the realm of comprehension for us. So it's, again, that aids to our fascination. And finally, on the most basic of levels, serial killers appeal to the most basic, powerful, and primal instinct we have, survival. Bond said that these killers' total disregard for life and the suffering of others shocks our sense of humanity and makes us question our safety and security. And honestly, that's it for most of us. We either fall into one or all of those categories. But, and this will add to the fear you may have, so I apologize for that. What if there's a fourth reason that you're into serial killers? Because you're infatuated with them and you would like to emulate what they did, the fear they caused, the questions they created in the minds who hunted them, and the survival instincts that they triggered. I know that we are so fixated on the serial killers themselves that we don't often think about the trickle effect that it could cause in an unstable mind. But it's very real. Copycat crimes, according to Dr. Joni Johnson and a recent study of those in the prison system, say that 22% of criminals admit it to having committed a copycat crime. Crime-related media coverage can give troubled individuals inspiration, ideas, and the impetus to brag about their plans. And because there is no greater coverage than that of a serial killer, these larger-than-life figures, it is only a matter of time until we see a copycat emerge. And it is this phenomena that I'm going to talk about today. Not one of the most well-known serial killers in the United States who evaded capture their entire lives but the story of a boy from Brooklyn who was influenced by him so much that he became a killer himself. 
Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. The Zodiac Killer was considered the first of the heavy hitters. He operated in Northern California in the late 1960s. His attacks took place in the San Francisco Bay Area and Vallejo. He has five murdered victims, two who were left injured, but he claimed that there were more. He claimed that he had killed 37 people. The killer sent letters to the media taunting the police. He sent cryptograms and ciphers, two of which have never been solved, one that took 51 years to crack. Still, we do not know for sure who he is. What we do know is that he accomplished his goal of gripping an entire state in fear. You have to think that Zodiac's first letters, um, the letters that he sent to three major newspapers, were sent on August 1st, 1969. And I know we kind of went over this a little bit when we talked about the Gaffney Strangler, but it's, it's relevant to this case too. So he sent those letters on the 1st of August. And the Tate and LaBianca murders that also happened in California, I know Southern California, but they happened on August 8th through the 10th, which is only one week later. So... It's kind of a wild time that Zodiac exists within, and I think that's another reason why his crimes have become so infamous, because they are so closely tied to the Manson murders, what are, the Tate-LaBianca murders, and that's because these two incidents happening in history are at a time when you're seeing the end of, like, what is considered the hippie movement, right? Like, this killed them. And America is now thrust into this new realization of, wow, the world's actually a bad place and things aren't just flowers and rainbows because not only are we going through Vietnam, we have a serial killer terrorizing the state of California and taunting the police through the media. So everyone is seeing this play out in real time. And then we have the horrific Tate and LaBianca murders. And it's kind of a time when America loses its innocence. And I think that Zodiac would have been considered one of those serial killers that we always talk about. But this made it even more infamous, like I said before. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so true. Like you said, it goes from this innocence of the nation and then all of a sudden we're like dealing with the butchery and the savagery of like, you know, all these murders that we're talking about here. It's kind of crazy. Just also, killing innocent people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, also, you have to think all these serial killers—they're really bold. Like they're challenging police. Like, come and find me. Like, solve my puzzles and try to get me because you won't be able to. Yeah. Like that's a other level because it shows sophistication. You know, it's it was scary. a cat and mouse game that the people of California were watching play out in front of them, and they felt like. The police are supposed to protect us, and if they can't find this guy, then nobody's safe. Scary thought. It is a scary thought, and I think that we see those serial killers live on in ways that nowadays wouldn't necessarily happen because of the technology we have with crime solving. 
That's very true. Between CCTV cameras everywhere and... DNA, ballistics. It's a little harder. Yeah. So in his letters, the Zodiac said that all of those he killed would become his slaves in heaven. And that was truly terrifying. Um, What the Zodiac did resonated with the people of California and the United States for decades. And after the crimes he committed, even now, um, people still will consider Zodiac one of the biggest serial killers that America ever had because he did evade the evade capture. A lot of people have been suspected of being the Zodiac over time, but we don't have concrete evidence. And one of those people that Zodiac resonated with was Herberto Seda. And he was known by his family as Eddie. So we'll be referring to him as Eddie Seda throughout the episode. Seda grew up with his mother, siblings, and sporadically the men that his mother, Gladys Alvarado, was married to. There had been three men that she married in total, but he really only ever saw her third husband. Because Seda had two older sisters who shared one father. And then his own father left the picture before he could even remember. He had left Gladys before Eddie was even three years old. And he never had a relationship with his biological father. Nor did he really have a relationship with his stepfather, the father of his youngest sister, who was born when Seda was 11 years old. His youngest sister's name was Gladys, like her mother, However, the girl bore a strong resemblance to a character from Happy Days, so everyone calls her Chachi. That's really funny. Which is really cute. Seda was close with one of his older sisters, the one who was closer to him in age. And it was only her and his mother sometimes that he showed a fondness towards. Seda suffered from two high fever seizures at the age of five. We don't know how close together they were or for how long they lasted, but there are school records that indicate that his mother was told that she should take a young Eddie to the doctor because there were times that he would seem to space out during conversations or situations at school. When he would snap out of it, he would have no memory of what was said during this time. Now, this sounds like something that is known as absence seizures. According to John Hopkins Medical, This seizure causes a brief changed state of consciousness and staring. Your child will likely maintain posture. His or her mouth or face may twitch or the eyes may blink rapidly. This seizure should usually last no longer than 30 seconds. When the seizure is over, your child may not recall what just occurred. He or she may go on with activities as though nothing ever happened. And these seizures may occur several times a day. This type of seizure is something mistaken usually for learning or behavioral problems. And absence seizures usually always start between the ages of four, which is kind of around the time that she was told, okay, you should probably take your son to the doctor. But Miss Alvarado never took her son to see a doctor. He was not fond of doctors. And even from a very early age, whatever Eddie said went in their households. Now, these things are important to note because depending on the height of the fever that caused the seizure, there could have been brain damage sustained, which is something we know is common among serial killers. Around the same time when he was 14 years old, Seda began beating his younger sister, 
who was only three. This is going to sound, I hope this doesn't come out wrong, but we say there are some like precursors to people being serial killers. It's kind of known as the McDonald triad where it's fire starting, bedwetting, and the herding of animals. Some people say it's true. Some people say it's not true. But the herding of animals, what I think it is, is, is herding of something that you have no empathy towards. And it's something that is kind of innocent and you can easily dominate. And that's why as children, they usually hurt animals. But now that he's 11 years older than his sister, so I think this is kind of on the even playing field of that because he's beating and hurting something that he knows can't fight back. And like that's Kim getting out his sadistic nature. You can make the argument that his upbringing has something to do with this. Like as far as he has this seizure condition, it's definitely doing some sort of, you know, damage to him and it's not being addressed. So, you know, you have that. That's causing problems, you know, with probably family members, maybe kids of his own age, people at school. He's not forming any sort of social uh, connections with anyone. No, he's not. So that's also very damaging. So that plays a part in it as well. And it also means that the mother is not doing anything about it because she doesn't want to admit maybe that anything is wrong. No, he actually is able to kind of like have free reign within his household once... Chachi's father is going to leave the picture and his mother gets her third divorce. Eddie becomes like the man of the household and really whatever he says goes and she doesn't really interfere in the physical abuse that's taking place between her children. Now I will say at first the abuse was kept secret. Eddie would sneak into his sister's room and hold a pillow over her face until she was just about to suffocate and then he would let her breathe. And, and remember, this is a three-year-old child. He told her that if she ever told an adult or their babysitter what was happening, that he would make it worse. And one of the attacks was so terrifying when they had a babysitter there that Chachi did run and tell her babysitter what had happened. And true to his word, that night, Eddie went into her room, pulled her hair and punched and kicked her. And the beatings like this happened all of the time. And as they got older um, and Eddie was kind of hitting puberty, the beatings got worse and his mother was aware of them because they would happen openly without in the house and police were called several times. Yeah, it's really unfortunate when you let that type of behavior spiral out of control because you've let this kid create dominance and let him control everyone in the house. Yeah. Like... It's bad if you let one kid get that way. But then it's a whole other thing when you let that one kid that is doing this do this to other children that you have. Like, it's your point. At some point, it, you know, you're the parent. You have to try to protect your other children. But right. you know what? We could sit here and say that all day long. We're not in this situation, so we, we don't, don't know. know what but exactly happened. From an outside perspective, that is what you would gather and what you would think. It is sad. Yeah. 100%. So the constant beating of his sister coincided with him hitting puberty and his social withdrawal. At this point, Sadov completely refuses to speak with anyone really in his home and at school. He kind of goes through this um, silence, this period of silence where he doesn't speak for about a year. And 
small things that would happen would cause him to fly into a rage, but there was no communication happening, either at home or at school. And after about a year, he started to talk with others again. And the beatings of his sister are going to continue even when he, like, I guess we could say becomes verbal again. This is also the time that he becomes fascinated with the military and weapons. Now, we don't know where um, he exactly got a gun. But when he was a junior at Franklin K. Lane High School, he brought a gun to school and fired it while he was showing other students. Luckily, no one was hurt. But for doing this, he was suspended. And that is, we can obviously tell that this is a pre-Columbine world because if this were to have ever happened, he would have been immediately expelled. Yeah. He brought a gun to school and it went off. I mean, that's such a bad sign. He could have killed somebody. Yeah. So after this incident and he gets suspended, instead of kind of like realizing, oh my God, what I did was absolutely terrible, he gets angry at the administration at his high school and the NYPD. He feels like they humiliated him in this situation by suspending him. So he kind of gets so angry that he just completely drops out of high school around this time. So there's no rationality in his thinking. No. You got your hands on a gun and brought it to school. I, you know, that is the worst thing you could do. But. Well, I think he interprets everything as these like kind of slights towards him, which makes him fly into a rage. And then he takes out his aggression as of right now in his life on his sister. That's really sad. So Seda was very unfriendly to strangers. Whenever someone he didn't know would try and talk to him or strike up a conversation, he would just look at them and say, and why should I talk to you? And then he would usually walk away. This, though, could be attributed to advice from his mother. Now, although Gladys didn't have massive control over her son, she did kind of preach to her children about certain things and they would always listen to her like Eddie overall listened to his mother but he was allowed to fly into his rages and the family lived in a building which was located at 2730 Pitkin Ave in East New York now the neighborhood had certainly taken a turn since Gladys Alvarado had moved in and the religious woman wanted to keep her family safe I mean we are talking about the absolute peak of the crack epidemic in New York and East New York is known as during this time one of the worst and most dangerous neighborhoods to be in in New York City and she wanted to keep her family safe so she told her children that she didn't want them to leave the apartment unless they were going to school church or to run errands And from where they're located, their kind of like apartment building, I guess we could call it. It's really, it's kind of like a horseshoe building that has a small courtyard, but two buildings down at the corner of Pitkin, there's a kind of like a grocery, a mini grocery store deli. So like they were only allowed to go there, go to school, go to church. And if they had a job, they were allowed to go to work, but that's the only thing that they had to do. And she didn't want them to be out on the streets. And she would kind of preach to them over and over again. She was an extremely religious woman. 
that she didn't want them to be out on the sinful streets with the drug dealers and prostitutes. And in reality, that is kind of what surrounded them. They lived in a very bad neighborhood. And by the way, just to school you a little bit, that's what you would call a bodega. Oh, sorry. I don't know. I didn't grow up in the city. Yeah, so. it's it's a bodega, like a deli slash bodega. Okay, so that's, that's where they would go and get, like, yeah. everything they needed. Yeah, because it has, like, you know, all your, like, standard grocery stuff in there. Plus, okay. there's usually a deli counter, so, yeah. Yeah, that is exactly what it is, so you're I've, right. I used to hang out in front of one all the time. Well, <laughs> they were not allowed to hang out in front of their bodega. Well, mine wasn't as bad as that, yeah. so. <laughs> so, actually, this is really interesting because the whole time, you know, we were talking about these crimes and we were doing research, we did, like, kind of call, like, John's dad and mom and talk to them about a little bit about this because this happened while they were still living in queens right so this is right before like, these crimes will start just as johnny's actually born or and he's a toddler so his parents really remember this growing up in queens which is really only a few blocks away from where this is all happening so it's kind of, it's crazy and it, this one hit a little close to home yeah it was pretty interesting yeah so Eddie obeyed these rules, and his sisters mostly obeyed these rules. See, his sisters are a little bit more social than him, and he's, you know, exhibiting pretty troubling behaviors. So he likes kind of withdrawing within his own bedroom. And Gladys totally practiced what she preached. She only left the house to run errands or go to Spanish mass, which she did every day. She attended this mass at St. Patrick's Cathedral in Manhattan, which is breathtakingly gorgeous. And she would go there every single day. So she would be gone for long periods of time because she actually had to travel to Manhattan to do this via public transportation. And she was really strict with them when it came to religion and the way they acted They weren't allowed to curse, to drink. She didn't want them going outside ever because that meant they would. She thought even them leaving the house would be them engaging in sinful activity because that's what surrounded them. And she was very strict about them all abstaining from sex outside of marriage. At this point, Seda was building his collection of weapons, which mostly consisted of knives and brass knuckles. It seemed that everything he was into he was obsessed with the military weapons ufos porn serial killers horror movies and beating on his sister once seda dropped out he must have visited the army recruiters because they came to his house to have his mother sign papers for him to join the army his eventual goal he explained to his mother was for him to be a part of the special forces Seda never ended up joining the military, and we don't know why. There are many conflicting stories. Seda said that he didn't pass a test, but his mother stated that he was not allowed to join the army because he was her only son. But whatever happened, it caused a lot of tension within the house, and he didn't speak to his mother for a certain amount of time. So a lot of people kind of theorized that maybe his mother didn't sign the paperwork for him to enlist. Yeah, it's a possibility. I also just want to bring up something. I want to have this conversation with you because I think it's pretty interesting. And it's probably not talked about often. At least I don't think. This is like a recipe. Like I almost want to say like a pressure cooker because here we are. We have we've listed all of his issues so far and what's kind of been going on. 
we're also now talking about how his mom set ground rules so the kids really wouldn't leave the house. But what that really causes is this kid who has a lot of issues. like And pent up aggression. Yeah, he's stuck in a house now due to the surrounding areas where he lives. So now he becomes infatuated with guns, knives, violence, horror movies. And he can't everything. have friendships because he can't leave the house. Right. So it causes this pressure cooker. And it's just like now, uh, you know, we're waiting to see what's going to happen because there's no outlet for him at all. I agree with this. It's totally a bad situation where they say that, you know, your chemical makeup is what's going to load the gun, but it's your environment that's going to pull the trigger. And I think this is a perfect example of that. Yeah, 100%. So at this time, the only salary that was coming into the home was that of his older sisters, who would soon be leaving because she was getting married. And because he was not going to join the army, Seda went to work at the cabinetry shop owned by Chachi's father. However, this ended in disaster and caused Seda to retreat to his room. Seda, around this time, attempted to get a gun permit. But because he was not working, he was unable to pay the $200 fee that it cost. And this was something that he couldn't cover because like, now the house is only being supported by his mother's disability and social security checks. He, I know this doesn't make sense to us, but he was humiliated by this. And this fueled his disdain that he had for the NYPD because he thought, again, here they are humiliating him like they did when he was in high school and he brought the gun to school. He was angry with them because they couldn't keep the streets of East New York clean from what he called the street people. And what he meant by that when he says the street people, because this is going to come up again and again within this case, he's referring to the drug dealers, drug addicts, prostitutes and their johns. With his favorite sister now out of the house and him having no job, no friends, going through the realization that he wasn't joining the army and the humiliation he felt at the hands of the police, the 21-year-old took his frustrations out on his 10-year-old sister. I mean, now you have to be like, I know this was, this has always been bad, right? He was 14 and his sister was three when the abuse started. But for seven years now, this girl has been going through this. She knows nothing but pain and torment in her house that she's not allowed to leave. Yeah, it becomes a cage for everyone here. It's it's really bad. It's, it's, it's really bad. terrible. And now he's, tw- how old is he, 21? 21. You're beating up your 10-year-old sister. Yeah, I mean. Come on. Now it's Ooh. at a, to- I mean. I guess it's always been bad. bad. Yeah, yeah it's always bad. I was, I was, because I was yeah. gonna say that, and then I'm yeah. like, wait, no, it was always that. bad. Yeah, I'm not gonna say it. it's. It was always bad. Yeah, but like at 14 years old, you could be like, okay, is he frustrated? Like maybe he's going through something. But now that you're an adult man and you're beating up a 10 year old, but it does happen because people abuse their children all the time, and I think he really did see Chachi more like that than like an equal to him because she was born when he was 11 years old. Right. So because of the abuse that she suffered at home, Chachi began to act out at school, which obviously is going to happen. She would bring knives to school and hide them throughout the elementary school's library. She also, just as her brother did, brought a gun to school. She was in fourth grade. She told her classmates that she had brought it to school to defend herself against a girl that she had been fighting with. She told them that she was going to kill the girl with it. And of course, those children told an adult who confiscated the gun and called the police. 
The police were familiar with the family. They'd been called to the residence several times before because neighbors were concerned with the fighting that they heard going on within the apartment um, because Seda was always screaming and going on about something. The officers knew that the 10-year-old girl had taken the loaded 22 caliber pistol from her brother, who did not have a license for the weapon, so the gun was taken. After the incident, Seda stopped attacking his sister. He definitely still had control over the house, and he wasn't not attacking his sister because he realized, look at the emotional damage that I'm causing, and I'm, and I'm causing her to lash out at school and to take things to that violent level because that's the violent level that she experiences at home when she goes through just a normal conflict of childhood. But he does it because he doesn't want the police to come into the house and search his room because of all the illegal weapons he has. And and now we know what he was planning. Right. It affects his bottom line. So right. that's so, why he's doing it. <laughs> and that's why he stopped attacking. His rages didn't stop and his control of the family didn't really stop. But he did stop beating his sister so the neighbors would stop calling the police and they wouldn't have to come and do welfare checks, which they had to do for a year after this incident of her bringing the gun into school. So he now would have to control his temper. And I mean, he did it because he was planning something horrible, which is terrifying. But I mean, I am happy that Chachi did receive a reprieve at this point because now the physical beatings have stopped. And we see later on in life, she just has really this hatred and anger towards her brother, which I would 100% feel if I had to suffer seven years of beatings like that. 100%. It's 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 justified. Her feelings against him are totally justified. Yeah. So what Seda did not want the police to find were his new weapons collection. He had worked very hard at making his own pipe guns or zip guns, as they're also known. These are homemade guns made using pipes. Um, he used welding and an end cap and a blunted nail. So he was making these guns because obviously we know he couldn't get his gun license, but he wanted to use a gun because his idol, the Zodiac, that's how he killed. Now, the recoil on these weapons are really rough. So Seda had to put adhesive tape and kind of bands on it to help with the blowback, especially because of the bullets that he was using in them. Now, when you make these kind of guns, you have to be very careful to pick the right size ammo because if it's too big, the entire zip gun could like blow up your hand. Even if it's the right size ammo, it could blow up your like this could go terribly wrong. There's a book, actually. I forget the name of it. I I, want to say it's like the anarchist book or something. Cookbook? Cookbook. Yeah, it's something, you know, they ban that book everywhere, but um, it tells you how to like make everything. But anyway, the issue here is that these pipes are not rated for the amount of pressure that's going to be built when the hammer hits the the shell casing. And when that happens, it, it, you know, even if it's the right bullet, like you said, it'll be like holding a grenade in your hand. Yeah. And it's really terrifying. Like, to do this is not a good idea because people make, like you said, zip guns. Um, you could also make something called a push shotgun or like a, like a like a hammer hit shotgun where it's literally just you hitting the back of the gun and it fires the pin that fires a shotgun shell. Wow. It's kind of crazy because that's all it really is. 
you know, when the hammer comes down, it, it pops the, you know, the, you know, and lights the thing and shoots it. But anyway, there's so much pressure in that. It's like, you know, if it blows up, it's shrapnel everywhere. Yeah. So not a good idea, dude. No. And he even said that when he first started making these weapons, because you do, he would test fire them and he almost blew his hand off a few times. I wish that that would have happened because it would have prevented a lot of heartbreak later on. But he would test them when his mother was at church and he would put the TV and music very loud and then wrap the like his hand in the gun in a comforter so it would stifle the sound a little bit. But he really had patches all over the drywall, like the walls of his room, the ceilings, because he would practice shoot these guns off in his apartment and really i mean east new york we're kind of we'll go into the crime statistics but it's not going to be weird even if they did really hear a shot go off i mean that's very true um also this is the scariest thing about him creating the guns i just kind of popped into my mind you can go into any hardware store and everything that you need is in there oh yeah 100 percent and that's why he did it. Yeah. Like, there's a few reasons why Seda kind of went the route of these handmade zip guns. One was it was a budget operation. He had no money. The money that he did have, he got illegally, of course, through sticking plastic bags up into busy payphones. And then he would go collect the bags every so often. So his operation was really run on stolen change. And with that change, he would buy magazines that he liked about weapons and military, the pipes, the supplies he needed, and the ammo like he would send out in like in the military and weapons catalogs, he would send out for the the ammo and then he would get it shipped to him. So that's how he received everything he was getting. And of course, he would also buy the occasional knife or brass knuckles. At one point, he even got ninja stars. Like, he was just kind of obsessed with getting these different weapons. And that's one reason why he did the zip guns. Now, he could have saved up, you know, with the change and illegally purchased a gun off the streets. I mean, it's East New York in the late 80s. He probably could have done it within minutes. But he detested street people, as he called them. So he thought they couldn't be trusted and he didn't want his money, which was stolen, by the way, let's not forget that, to be used to support their sinful ways. Yeah. I mean, also, you have to understand whether he's buying a gun out on the street or making his own, what's the one thing that it's not going to have? The like, the code, the number. Like like every gun has an uh, like a, like a code number right. on it. A serial number. Sorry, that's the term so whether it's scratched off or doesn't have one because he made it that's another reason too it can't be traced if he shot somebody with it and threw it on the floor they wouldn't have an idea where it came from they also it won't make the markings on the bullets like the slugs yeah like they can't they have no idea where this is coming from so that makes it so much harder for the police to find out who he is and that is the third reason why he decides to make the guns instead of getting one his own, because he was terrified that the ballistics would be traced back to him. Uh, it's pretty smart, though, on, on, you know, 
to go through this to learn learn how to make it. Even though it's yeah. dangerous, that's the way of avoidance. So, I mean, I guess, I mean, it, it helps, I guess. Yeah, and he was obsessive about making these weapons. Like, when he would go through his kind of, like, mini welding session to make them, he would deprive himself. Like, he would kind of lock himself in his room, and he wouldn't eat, bathe, drink, until or sleep until this gun was done and like the guns would usually take like 48 hours to make so it was at this point that eddie seda began taking private walks if you remember his mother did not want her children leaving except for school church or errands well seda didn't really go to church rather he read the bible and this book he had it was like moses's magic book which we'll talk about later Um, He read these two books for hours a day. He could quote both of them. He did not attend school and he had no job. So he would really only leave the house to go out for an occasional errand. But what his mother didn't know was that when she and his sister would go to sleep, he would sneak out of the house. He became a voyeur of the city. He would observe people in the streets from park benches and atop the hills of the cemeteries that Brooklyn had to offer. Now, Eddie is going to kind of have his stalking grounds. And I just want to describe it here just so everybody knows where he lives just north of him is the Cypress Hill Cemetery. This is a massive stretch of land in Brooklyn, and it kind of goes into Queens a little bit, where there's a number of cemeteries. There's like the biggest cemetery is the Cypress Hill Cemetery, but then there's offshoots of cemeteries. And there, there's also, and one of them is a private military cemetery. So this whole land is actually owned by the federal government, but attached to these five cemeteries at The West End is Franklin K. Lane High School, where Eddie attended. And then all the way on the West Side is going to be a park. And it's in the park and the cemeteries where Eddie is going to do a lot of his stalking. And he also does wait at the high school several times to see some of his victims. So this whole big stretch of land is where he's going to kind of lie in wait and watch people and watch their routines and figure out who they are and that's how he picks his victims so when I refer to the Cypress Hill cemeteries I'm kind of talking about this whole big stretch of area and it's actually a pretty famous cemetery because a lot of famous people are buried within here Jackie Robinson Mae West Harry Houdini so it's actually a a lot of people are always kind of within this vicinity whether they're at the cemetery visiting loved ones or they are fans of the people who passed away that are buried in the cemetery or their kids from the high schools where there's so many high schools around here because it is the city going to these parks. So that's just kind of like the grounds that I'll be talking about for the rest of this episode. And so I just wanted to express that, but it does stretch um, from where Eddie is in East New York all the way into uh, Queens. Yeah, it's pretty big. It's huge. Yeah. So he is going to kind of be observing from the cemeteries because the cemeteries are they're massive hills. 
and from the hills he has this vantage point of people so it's it's so eerie in thinking that he's like upon these hills of death and he's overlooking the people who he is going to want to pick for his next victims it's so scary it is scary and um when he would get comfortable enough with kind of seeing people's routines the houses that were around the cypress hill cemetery he would even start like looking into people's windows that is so creepy (laughs) yes jeez Seda hated the drugs, prostitution, and filth that he saw all around him. He wanted to rid the city of it. He wanted to leave an impression and have everyone fear him. When he thought of this, he thought about the one serial killer that he admired most, the Zodiac Killer. He had evaded the police and gripped an entire state in fear. He was in control and organized, and that's what Seda craved. Control. We know that he had tried to do some evaluations of himself, and for the most part, he was semi-self-aware. He owned a psychological textbook where he highlighted several passages. He highlighted passages on obsessive-compulsive behavior and disorder, anxiety, and voyeurism. Possibly he was trying to understand himself, but he was all of those things. He did have obsessive-compulsive disorder, His room was perfect, spotless. He had to mop his floor once a day, and everything had an exact place. Like, all of the kind of, like, the angles of his book had to be in the same place, and they had to point to the angles of another book, and he would know if someone even came in his room and touched something. But it wasn't the psychology textbook that he went with. Instead, he poured himself into a book called Moses's Magical Spirit Art, a book filled with the joining of astrology and religion and the use of incantations and white and black magic. He believed that spirits could be called upon by using incantations and that these spirits would do one's bidding and that the ancients believed that astrological influences, the zodiac signs and the heavenly bodies, were gifted with life and that they were endowed with higher powers, and that they could exercise an influence upon man by means of mysterious magical influence. They would be able to regulate man's temperament and his disposition in terms of his life. So basically, God and the Zodiac determined what happened in your life and could predict your fate. That was his belief. Now, these beliefs were the marriage of his two largest obsessions, religion and the Zodiac Killer. He saw this as a sign for him to continue the mission of the Zodiac. He would be a soldier of God, protect the city and make those around him fear him. And he would be in complete control because he alone would know that he was the one responsible for the fear that he would instill. His first step towards becoming the Zodiac copycat killer of New York City was writing and sending a letter to the 75th Precinct. Now, this precinct covers the East New York area of Brooklyn and was the precinct in which he lived. Now, I just want to stray for one second. This particular area of Brooklyn, this precinct, um, the 75th Precinct, the 75, was known as the most dangerous precinct to be a police officer in the country. 
I mean, that's pretty crazy to think the entire country, this one precinct in Brooklyn. Yes. They had 400 shootings a year in this precinct alone. Oh, my God. Yes. That's more than one a day. They had the highest murder rate in the country and a crack epidemic. They had a sign in the precinct that said, give us 22 minutes and we'll give you a homicide. And it was true. They're trying to copy 1010 Wins News. Yeah. Well, I think that's what it was like <laughs> yeah, from. Yeah. yeah. Um, what happens under that strain, you just can't do enough, right? I mean, listen, I'm not saying there's any excuse for corruption amongst police officers because they're supposed to be the ones policing our streets. But you have to imagine the tremendous strain that one might be under trying to police in this precinct while also only making a penance, nothing, no amount of, they can barely support their families with the money they're making. And if you're living, if you're working in the most dangerous area, it's a high probability that you might die going to work. So you can imagine the frustration that might have built up and also not even just the fear of being murdered, but the caseload strain that all of these people had. So a lot of stuff is going to build up for these officers and they're also going to become disillusioned. Like if the guy you thought you were helping, right, you're trying to break him of his habit because they were through going through a crack epidemic, the next day is murdered. I mean, it's like you just feel like, what am I doing this for? And the police officers, to make their lives easier, started to protect themselves by accepting bribes from drug dealers. Like they would be protected by the dealers of this cartel if, they gave them tips, and you start to see the dirty cops beginning to exist in the 7-5, right? And that's just the basic level. But now you're going to see some cops who have bad intentions and ulterior motives, and they're going to see, oh, there's a lot of money to be made here. And now this is where you see the crooked cops and the bad intentions when you have officers who are making a drug bust and they find cash in a duffel bag, well, they're going to take that cash and say they found no cash at the scene. Like yeah. now you start to see things like this come through. So not only are you living, if you live in East New York, the most dangerous place in the country at the time, the officers that are supposed to be serving and protecting you are a part of that drug dealing world and they are now corrupt. So you're kind of, you're on your own if you live in this area, which is terrifying. And this actually became a pretty big deal. The officers would protect certain dealers and cartels. And this corruption is going to be brought to a head when all of these officers are arrested in 1990. And there's this massive corruption trial that happens in 1992. The same time Eddie Seda is operating as the Zodiac copycat. Yes, there's a lot of there's a lot of moving parts going on right now. There is so much happening in the seven five. Like not only are they going through this massive, the largest police corruption trial in New York City history, most likely in U.S. history, they've got an operating serial killer. There's a lot, yeah, <laughs> a lot happening. And this all, if you're interested in this, this there's actually a um a documentary made about this police corruption. It's called the Seven Five. Oh my god. It is so good. Yeah. It's a really good documentary. 
you know, it's it's hard because, you know, you are dealing with, like, risking your life every single day. It's a perfect storm. It like it's a yeah, it's a crappy situation, and I'm not, um, I'm not saying that what they're doing is right. No, it's totally wrong. But it's just, I can see how this could happen though. You're not being paid. You're risking your life every single day. I should say you're not getting paid a lot. You're risking your life every single day. The crime is rampant. The drugs are rampant. You know, like, there's a lot. And some people, they just start to crack. And they say to themselves, why am I doing this for? Like, why am I out here trying to help out, you know, these, you know, let's say drug dealers, drug drug addicts, whatever it is. You have all this crime that's happening. And it's probably stemmed from the top and worked its way down, if you really think yeah. about it, during, you know, that this time, for sure. Oh, 100%. So, like, they probably thought, hey, look, this is money for me to, like, do the things I need to do and maybe support my family or whatever. And they would just turn a blind eye to, like, a lot of the stuff that was happening. Yeah. No, I agree. And, and that is how New York was probably got to be so bad. Oh, 100%. In certain areas. Yeah. yeah. And, honestly, the people of... East New York, I mean, they're dealing with this massive corruption trial from the police. And now they have a serial killer operating. They're still going through these 400 shootings a year, um, more amounts of homicide and violent crime. And they probably just looked at each other and said, like, just another day of living in East New York. Because it's true. So before we go any further, we're just going to take a break and talk about our first sponsor of the show, Eggcorn TV. We don't know what it is, the humor, the accents, or the endless amounts of TV, but John and I have been loving British TV, and our go-to place to get our fix is Acorn TV. Acorn TV is the largest commercial-free British streaming service that features compelling stories, exclusive premieres, and the originals you won't find anywhere else. Acorn TV has hundreds of exclusive shows from around the world, including award-winning mysteries, dramas, comedies, histories, and so much more. The series you find on Acorn TV are cleverly written, visually striking, and feature renowned actors and hosts like David Tennant and Mary Berry. The show we have just finished binging is Queens of Mystery. Queens of Mystery follows the adventures of three crime-writing sisters and their 28-year-old niece, Detective Sergeant Maddie Stone. Using their knowledge of crime, both real-world and fictional, together they solve the murders in the picturesque English region of Wildmarsh. But no matter how many cases they're able to crack, the unsolved murder that haunts all the characters is that of Maddie's mother's disappearance 25 years ago. With Acorn TV, you get thousands of hours of new enthralling content for a fraction of the cost compared to most streaming services at just $5.99 a month. With Acorn TV, we always get our British fix, and you can too. Try Acorn TV for 30 days by going to acorn.tv and using our promo code TCC but you have to enter the code in all lowercase letters. That's A-C-O-R-N dot TV, promo code TCC, to get your first 30 days for free. Acorn dot TV, code TCC. Okay, let's get back to the show. Okay, so 
Now, I know that I kind of like took us off on a crazy tangent talking about the 7-5, but let's talk about the letter that Seda sent to the 7-5. The letter was addressed to the anti-crime unit of the 75th precinct. There was no return address, and on the outside of the envelope, there was a circle with a cross on top of it. And that's kind of like the symbol of the zodiac, but um, Seda kind of moved the cross up a little bit more. The officer opened the envelope, and on top of the single sheet of paper was a large circle. It was filled with concentric lines, basically like a pizza. Like, think about, like, a pizza pie. But instead of there being eight slices, there was 11. The sign Virgo, the virgin, was missing from the circle. These were the 11 damned signs of the zodiac. Someone from each sign would die. Or at least, that was what he was trying to illustrate here. The Taurus section had a notion. The Taurus section had a notation. It said, the first sign is dead. At the center of the circle were the words, the zodiac, and it was underlined three times. The letter read, this is the zodiac. The first sign is dead. The zodiac will kill the 12 signs in the belt when the zodiacal light is seen. The Zodiac will spread fear. I have seen a lot of police in Jamaica Ave and Elder Lane, but you are no good and will not get the Zodiac. Orion is the one that could stop Zodiac and the Seven Sister. The letter was signed Zodiac in green ink, and at the bottom of the page was a larger version of what was on the front, a circle with a cross. Only here it looked more like a crosshair a symbol similar to the one used by the Zodiac, who was active in 1969. Also, it was understood by the officer who read that the mention of the corner of Jamaica Ave and Eldred Lane was a reference to the diner that was known to be a place where police officers and detectives would eat. So he's basically saying, I see you guys hanging out and you're just eating food. You're not doing what you're supposed to do. So you'll never catch me. Well, you know, people have to eat. That is, that is true. People do have to eat. <laughs> the officer that had the letter um, checked with ongoing cases to see if this would match anything that they kind of had going on. But they couldn't find anything. They talked it up to it being an emotionally disturbed person sending a letter. I mean, that's a term that police officers use, EDP, emotionally disturbed persons sending a letter that had no connection to any active cases. And this actually did happen sometimes. Not with as much frequency as it did so much after the Son of Sam murders were happening, and that was back in 1976 uh, and 77. So, like, after Son of Sam, to get attention, everyone was sending letters similar to Son of Sam, but that kind of dropped off, and now they're... They would get them occasionally. So this isn't something that was totally outside the realm of what they did receive, but it was strange. Um, And the guy who got the letter from the anti-crime unit, he actually made copies of it, and it was kind of distributed around the precinct as a joke. Well, you have to understand, they have the highest crime rate in the nation. They're dealing with serious problems. So when this comes across their table, they're not going to take it serious because no one's dead yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, it sounds morbid, but it's true. Like, there's no body count here, so they're not going to take this serious. 
No, I, I do. I understand that. I do also want to reiterate that that letter was sent in 1989. So this is before any crimes had taken place. And it would actually be months and months later that the actual first crimes do take place. Okay. But in reality, even though they thought it was a joke, there was nothing funny about what was about to happen. So as the new year ushered in a new decade, the Zodiac would begin his murder spree. He had already begun planning who he was going to choose as he stalked the streets of East New York. Seda carefully planned his first moves. First, he needed the correct conditions. He was born on July 31st, so he was a Leo. He wanted to wait until his constellation was in the sky, and both Orion and the Seven Sister constellation was not, because those, he believed, were the only ones that would be able to stop him. And finally, he found his perfect night. The night of March 7th going into March 8th of 1990. So now I would say this is about the first letter that he sent to the precinct was November 17th of 1989. And now this is March of 1990. So we're seeing like four months later, he's ready. So he had it took him four months to build up for this. So there were rituals that Eddie Seda felt that he needed to follow in order for his crime to go right. First, he sat at his desk in his room and he carefully took out his supplies. His white-lined paper, a blue pen, a green felt-tipped pen, a ruler, and a protractor. He would need all of them for his symbols and circle. With gloves on, he carefully crafted the note that he was going to leave for police to find at the scene. Once he was done, he very carefully placed everything back in his desk drawer. They were in the exact place that he lifted them from. Next was his protection. He took out another piece of paper and wrote the 83rd Psalm on it. He did this because it had been stated by his books that he so wholeheartedly believed in that you should write the 83rd Psalm properly upon pure parchment and suspend it around your neck. And by doing so, you will abide safely in war and avoid defeat and capture. And if you should be overcome by your captors, they will not harm you. For even in captivity, no harm could befall you. When he was done, he poked holes into the paper and ran a shoelace through them, making a necklace. He draped it around his neck. He then put on a pair of black pants, a black shirt, jacket, and boots. The boots had a two and a half inch platform and heel, so he could be at the same height as the Zodiac was in San Francisco. Are you serious? Yeah. Next, he put on one of the berets that he had. This one was a dark maroon. On it, there were two pins. One was a replica of the pin that represents the Army Special Forces, and the other an Omega symbol, quite similar to the symbol that represented his astrological sign, Leo, the lion. Next, he poured rose oil and salt into a bowl and mixed the two together. This was something that he was instructed to do from Psalm 20, where it states that if you place the mixture on your face, hands, and sprinkle it on your clothing, you will remain free from danger and suffering that day. 
As he put the mixture on his hands and face, he had to read the psalm seven times. May the Lord answer you when you are in distress. May the name of God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and grant your support from Zion. May he remember all of your sacrifices and accept your burnt offerings. May he give you the desire of your heart and make all of your plans succeed. We will shout for joy when you are victorious and will lift up our banner in the name of our God. May the Lord grant all your requests. Now I know the Lord saves his anointed. He answers from him his holy heaven with the saving power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. He repeated the reading six more times before his ritual was complete. He grabbed a zip gun, a three and a half inch knife, and the bullets that he needed. He then tucked the note in his pocket. He had several targets that he had been following, hunting. He had been watching them and their nightly routines, and he decided on the man with the cane. It was time that he started his collection. 59-year-old Mario Oroco lived in Brooklyn, but worked at a restaurant in Manhattan. For 16 years, Mario took the subway to and from work, but that was not all his journey was. He also had a 10-block walk from his home to the subway and one-block walk from the subway to his job. It was a grueling journey, but the man had a lot of fight and resilience in him. He had been born in Colombia, a blind and sickly child. However, with the help of injections, he was able to see out of one of his eyes. However, the treatments left him partially crippled in one leg, and it was because of this he had to use a cane to walk. Back in Colombia, he had a common-law wife and two children, a son who was 23 and a daughter who was 25. He had just been to visit them about six months prior. He relished in the time he got to spend with his children and grandchildren, but now it was back to work. Mario actually made less working at the restaurant than he would on welfare and disability, but he told others that he was too proud to go on welfare and that he would be just fine on his own. Everyone that knew him loved him. He was described as a jovial and warm-hearted man. Mario always slept on the way home. The lull of the quiet subway at one in the morning always put him to sleep after an exhausting shift at work. He would also need the energy to walk the 10 blocks back to the house he owned with his sister. He had been doing this trip for 16 years, so he never thought that he would miss his stop. He knew it by heart. At 1.45 a.m., he reached his destination. He walked up the stairs of the subway and began his walk. On his journey, he had to pass the Cypress Hill Cemetery. Under the cover of the trees and large headstones, Seda lurked, in black, smelling of that sickly sweet rose oil. He followed the man about five blocks. Just as Mario was about to reach Atlantic Ave from Nicholas Ave, Seda ran up behind him and shot him in the back with his zip gun. Mario fell to the ground and yelled, Stop, you're killing me and then help. From the ground, he looked up and saw his attacker, who was in all black, with a hat and scarf obscuring his face. He had a type of homemade gun, 
pointed right at him. His attacker stood over him for a long time, and Mario kept thinking, why is no one coming out? Why is no one helping me? What he didn't know was that the same thing had happened to Kitty Genovese 26 years prior on the other side of Highland Park in Queens. Mario closed his eyes. He waited for the second shot, and after a while he thought he was safe. So he opened his eye to see if the coast was clear. But it wasn't. The man was still standing above him. He kept thinking, where is everyone? Why is no one coming out? But it was East New York, Brooklyn, at 2 a.m., and people heard a gunshot. So they were staying inside. Mario closed his eyes again and only opened them again when he heard footsteps. But it was not someone approaching. It was his attacker fleeing. He saw the man run down Atlantic Avenue. He had left the weapon that he had used on the pavement, and it looked like there was a paper note wrapped around it. With the help of his cane, the 59-year-old man, who had been shot in the back, pulled himself up. He knew that no one was coming to help him. He was going to have to help himself. He reached around and felt the blood on his back. He was beginning to get sleepy. He walked four blocks back to his house. Are you serious? Can you believe that? No, I can't. Like, this guy is using a cane, and you said he was he was partially crippled? Yeah, his, his leg. Oh, my God. That is so sad. And he walks the four blocks to his house, and once he gets home, he makes himself a pot of coffee. What? Yeah. He's a little delusional and he's tired, but he kept thinking to himself, like, I can't, I'm not dying because a dying man can't walk four blocks. Dying man can't make a pot of coffee. And he kept thinking in his head, I'm sleepy, I'm sleepy, I'm sleepy. So I think that's why he delusionally made himself a pot of coffee. Man, what determination. Yeah. Seriously. So uh, once he made the pot of coffee, he then called 911. And he told him that he had to walk back to his house from where the attack happened because no one would help him. Remember, nobody came out. And even after the attacker flew, nobody came out to help him. Yeah, sounds about right. So when Mario was taken to the hospital, he learned that there was a bullet lodged in his spine. Oh, my God. And he walked four blocks. This man is one of the toughest men I've ever read about in my whole life. Yeah. It landed between two spinal discs. And he was lucky that it didn't paralyze him. The man that had shot him did not rob him. He just wanted him dead. And that terrified him. When the police returned to the site of the shooting, Mario had told them the man had left the weapon in a note. They found nothing. They also were not able to retrieve the bullet, so no comparisons could be done. Isn't it crazy? Nobody went out to help him, but they went out to go get the gun. (laughs) Well, that's kind of how it happens sometimes. Yeah. I, it's Sad. it's like a weird, eerie feeling at night in the city, no matter where you are yeah. sometimes. But even if they had the bullet, it would have been useless, right? Because this is from a homemade weapon. Yeah. So the only thing that Mario could give police was that the man might have been Spanish, but he also thought that he was white. He said when he ran away that he thought he ran like a white boy. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually kind of funny. (laughs) So as soon as Seda got somewhere safe after the first shooting, he stopped and made a note in his notebook. He wrote, The first sign dead on March 8th, 1990, 1.45 a.m. 
white man, they both read each other wrong. <laughs> They're both Spanish men, but they both called each other white men. Uh, with a cane shot in the back on the street. So again, he wrote in his notebook, first sign dead, March 8th, 1990, 1.45 a.m., white man with a cane, shoot on back. He he always spells, instead of saying shot, he writes shoot on back in the street. Later, he would note that Mario was a Scorpio. In his eyes, he had his first victim. The first sign he had taken down was the scorpion. No, I'm a Scorpio. I know. I knew that would get to you. But, I mean, this guy is totally a Scorpio and, like, walking the four blocks with a bullet wound He's in like, his this, back. He's like, this guy ain't going to get me. Yeah. I'm going to survive and <laughs> plot my vengeance. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so he had studied serial killers for years now, meaning Seda. And every time he watched a documentary or read a book about them, he would take notes. He had dozens of spiral notebooks about them. He would learn how they got caught. And he vowed to never be caught the same way. For example, he learned to never take anything from the scene. He could have robbed the man, taken from his wallet, but that's not what the Zodiac was about. He also could have taken a souvenir, but he didn't. The Zodiac would never take a souvenir. He only worked to spread fear and to be in complete control. At that point, Seda thought he was. What he did not know was that Mario Orocco had survived and the police never found his weapon or note. So, like, he was thinking, okay. Like, in in Seda's mind, he's thinking, they know I'm coming because of the 89 letter, which they wrote off as being an emotionally disturbed person. And he's thinking, okay, now they have my letter now, so they're going to see that I was true to my word to the first letter he had no clue they never got the first letter. And he didn't know that Mario didn't die. Yeah, this isn't really working out the way he planned. No, totally not. So the next time the star chart indicated that Leo was bright in the sky, he went out again with the intent to kill. He performed the same rituals he had for the first murder. And he set out just past midnight on March 29th, 1990. Germaine Montanestro was born on May 28th, 1955. He was a Gemini, and on the night of March 29th, he was very drunk. He swayed up Jamaica Avenue, which runs adjacent to the Cypress Hill Cemetery. In his hand, he held a half-finished quart of malt liquor, and that was not the first drink he had had that night. He'd been at a party with his girlfriend, but the two of them got into a fight, so he left. He had taken the subway to East New York to stay at his father's house for the night. But the 34-year-old was very indecisive. In his mind, he went back and forth about whether he wanted to go to his dad's house or back to the apartment that he rented with his girlfriend in the Bronx. It was a Wednesday night after all. Well, now Thursday morning. He could get to his job at the lamp factory where he worked more easily from his father's house because they were both in Brooklyn. But that would mean he would have to go to work in the clothes he was wearing that night. And that wasn't something you really wanted to do. But he was also drunk and he didn't want to travel all the way back to the Bronx. Air signs. Am I right? I'm saying that as a, as a Libra. So yeah. I can totally say that. <laughs> uh, Jermaine came to the United States from Ecuador with his family in 1983. 
They had always resided on Nicholas Ave, and that is where he decided he would go for the night, back to his father's house just to sleep off the fight and the alcohol. The location was only four blocks away from where the first shooting had happened. Like I said, he took the subway, and where the subway lets off is right in front of Franklin K. Lane High School. From the dark bleachers of the stadium at the high school, Eddie Seda watched the very drunk man sway down the street. He'd been thinking that luck was not on his side that night, until he saw the man emerge from the subway. None of Seda's targets had been out that night. He thought he was going to have to go home, but this was an opportunity. He just hoped the man wasn't a Scorpio like his first victim had been, because that would mess everything up. You know what I'm starting to notice here? Yeah. There's a trend, sort of. I don't okay. think it's intentional, but there's a trend here. You know, when when we go back to the mother, and the mother is a religious woman, and obviously, and don't take this the wrong way, um, she has no involvement in the way that her son interpret, interpreted, like, the Bible, right? His fanatical. His fanatical ways about it, right. But in a way, she kind of created, like, this his weird code that he follows, by like always getting him involved in the ch- in the church. Well, what's actually really interesting when it comes to Seda's religion and his mother's religion is you can almost say that they're two completely different things. Different, yeah. Because she is extremely Catholic. She goes to mass every single day and he has stayed home with his religion. And he has read the Bible along with this book, this like Moses's spiritual book. And he has kind of created this own religious code. And you would kind of make the argument, this own religion, which is a fusing of like astronomy and astrological signs and religion as he has interpreted it through the Bible. Yeah. So I I know what you're saying. His mom kind of put into his head, religion should be everything in your life. But he created his own religion and made it everything in his life. And she let it happen because in her mind, oh, Eddie's just in his room reading the Bible. And to her, that was good. Correct. Now, the weird part that I'm trying to get at is, you know, she referred to the people who are do drugs and, you know, are prostitutes and stuff as sinners He's going out there and taking care of people that he thinks need to be taken care of. Correct. But this is the issue. The first guy was none of those things. Okay? No. The second guy, okay, he's drinking. Big deal. Who cares? Who cares? Everyone drinks. He's not what the mother kind of like told him to watch out for. Correct. And what he believes is plaguing the streets. He's taking these people out that have nothing to do with this. Well, I think this also goes back to... Um, his power struggle and him remember when he was attacking his sister who's 11 years younger than him he the victims he picks are always victims that he knows that he could easily take advantage of and he could easily kill i mean the fir- mario had a cane so he easily could kill him 
this man he sees now is so inebriated he can barely walk. He's looking for weakness that he Correct. can take advantage of. It has nothing um, to do with his code. Like that's just something he tells himself. He's yeah. I I just want to make sure that everyone understands. I'm not saying that religion played a part in this. Like the I might have said it wrong. No, but what his I, fanatical yeah. religion totally plays a part in this. It's his code. Yeah. I just think that what I'm trying to get at is. He's listened to his mom talk about the sinners in, in East New York as being drug dealers and, and, and people who commit crimes and prostitutes or whatever. But the people that, he, that he's killing have none of those qualities. They're not like right. that. So it's just that's what I was trying to get at right. took a he's, little bit. <laughs> he's using that as a justification yeah. in his mind as to what he's doing. But that is not the reality of what he's doing. Correct. So before we get any further about the continuation of the second crime, we're just going to take a quick break to talk about our final sponsor of the show, Best Fiends. Whenever I have some downtime or I need to kill some time, I always like to open my Best Fiends app to break through some levels and power up the many fiends I've collected over the years. Currently, I'm on level 1085, and these puzzles are getting difficult, guys. But that's something I love about the game. As I progress through the game, the levels get more difficult and the puzzles more challenging. And I need all the fiends that I have more than ever. The challenge and the cute characters have kept me coming back year after year. And I've never stuck with a game this long. But Best Fiends never gets old. I feel like I'm still playing the fresh new game that I downloaded years ago. Best Fiends is a mobile puzzle game that anyone can download and play. Whether you have a few minutes or a few hours, Best Fiends is the perfect puzzle game to lose yourself in because you have so much fun. The game features tons of cute characters that help you solve thousands of fun puzzles. The more you play, the more characters you collect. New characters and challenging puzzles are added all the time. And there are tons of fun events where you can win so many rewards. Like just recently in the season of Caesar, where you complete daily tasks to earn huge rewards. With thousands of levels, you literally can play as long as you want and never get bored. Trust me on that. Download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. So now where we left off, Seda is now zoning in on Germain and he's realizing okay none of my other targets really came out tonight so I'm going to choose this man because it's an opportunity for me because he's so drunk but if he's a Scorpio it ruins his whole plan yeah so he's really taking a shot in the dark he's taking literally. a chance here yeah Seda yeah. <laughs> followed Germain and was able to quickly catch up with him he had taken it as a sign that they were so close to the first shooting. He got beside the victim and fired into the left side of his torso. Seda wanted to be sure that he knew who the man was that he had just killed. He reached into his pockets. In one, he found cash, but he didn't want it. In the other pocket, he found keys and a passport. Because this had not been as planned as the first attack, he took the passport and keys and ran as fast as he could. He ran south down Nicholas Street, and once he felt that he was far enough away, he stopped to look at what he had. Germain was a Gemini. Again, he took this as a sign that he was doing the right thing. 
that God was on his side. Now he had two victims under his belt, a Scorpio and a Gemini. He wrote that in his notebook. The second sign is dead on March 29, 1990, 2.57 a.m., white man with black coat shoot in the side in front of house. Seda threw the wallet and keys into a trash can and headed back to his house to go to sleep. But again, what Seda did not know was that his victim did not die. I think it's really funny that he thinks, not funny, but he thinks that God is on his side. But really, it seems as if God is on the victim's side because they survive. Yeah, that and also, can we just, I mean, this is a little comic relief here, I guess, but he keeps referring to everyone as white, but they're not white. Yeah, I think he just, I know. <laughs> like, I think that's so bizarre. You I know? guess because maybe it's dark and he's like focused on other things. I don't know. But you're right. He it's does always like yeah. say the wrong thing. So the victim, but he also get. I guess it's because of the heightened emotions of the time. But when people start being asked what the attacker looked like, they start saying that he was a black man, like a heavy set black man. So... That's also well. That's also too. it's kind yeah. of like well. That's also because we know that when eyewitness testimony can be so weird sometimes, right? And then know? I think that it's interesting that he, like, I think it's weird that he misrepresented Mario as being a white man because he had been following him. I understand him not understanding this because it's kind of like the first time he's seeing this victim, but yeah, he does not ever know who he is killing. <laughs> so. The victim had been shot in his left side, and the bullet had ripped through his liver and then traveled upward where it missed any other organ and settled just below his skin on his right side. I mean, that's pretty That's, that's pretty lucky. bad, but lucky too. Yeah. You know what it is? This zip gun, the recoil is so intense that it always, co- wherever he's trying to shoot, he ends up shooting so much further down. Because of the recoil of the of the weapon and him not being able to control it properly I mean, with yeah, the one it, hand. It's so crude. Also, he's shooting twenty two caliber bullets. So, I mean... Well, this... I, I think this might have been... The bullets are always different depending on the gun that he made. Oh, okay. So, I don't know if this one was a twenty two. Okay, never mind then. Okay. The first one was a twenty two, and I think that this one might have been... A 38. Hey, honestly, regardless of caliber size, to take a bullet anywhere um, is painful. Yes. And Jermaine had been shot just about 40 yards in front of his father's house. So luckily he wasn't too far away. He knew he had been shot and he knew he needed help. So he was able to stagger to his father's doorstep after falling several times. He was able to get the attention of his father who called 911. He was rushed to the hospital and brought in for emergency surgery. It would be painful and recovery was going to take a long time, but he was going to survive. The police had not found a letter at the scene, but that's because Seda didn't leave one. And like I said before, they dealt with 400 shootings a year, more than one a day. And I don't know if you know this statistic, but the spring is the busiest time of year for homicide and violent crime detectives. So... They never put these two cases together, but they really wouldn't. 
I think even if they were in a quieter location, like a suburb where nothing ever happens, I don't think they would have connected these two cases. They don't have bullets to compare. And in this one, it kind of looks like he was robbed because his passport was taken. I do get what you're saying. Did he leave the second um, um, gun there? No, he didn't. He took the gun this time. Okay. See, So he did a different thing. I think if he would have left that gun there, they would have said, okay, this is the second gun that's been handmade. And left the scene. And left, yeah. Well, no, because they never even found the first gun. Oh, that's right. So they didn't know. Yeah, so yeah, never mind. Well, Mario is going to say, I know that it was a homemade gun that was in my face. But it was never found. Right, exactly. But they didn't know the second gun is a homemade gun. And they can't even tell from the ballistics because the bullet was still lodged within Jermaine's body. So it would be hard to tie the two together. It's a long shot in the 7-5 to do that. So the next time the stars aligned for Eddie Seda, it was May 31st, 1990. Like the first time he went out, he constructed a note. But this time, he didn't want to leave his weapon at the scene of the crime, so he carefully wrapped the note in three stones. Three stones. One for each of the three victims that he would have by the end of the night. Now, you have to think this is happening in like quick succession. We have the beginning of March to the end of May. There's already going to be three victims. He wrote the psalm on the paper and hung it by his shoelace. He did his rosewater ritual and grabbed a knife and a gun. He was ready to go out again and punish sinners. The third victim of the Zodiac copycat killer would be the first to die. Joseph Procy, also referred to as John in some reports, was a 78-year-old veteran of World War II who suffered badly from arthritis and memory loss. He did not have an easy life, not the life that we would want someone who was elderly to have, especially someone who had served in World War II. He lived in a roach-infested basement in an apartment in Queens. Joe received only $500 a month from Social Security, and with his rent being $300, he didn't have a lot of money to go around. So at night, he would travel the length of Jamaica Avenue, which would take him into Brooklyn, looking for newspapers and food. He would do this late at night because he was embarrassed that this is how he had to feed himself. He usually went into dumpsters outside of delis or diners. He would find half-eaten meals that didn't have too much mold on them, and he would try to salvage what he could. That is the most, that's one of the saddest things I think I've ever uh, had to read. Uh, Well, not read, but listen to. It's just, that bothers me because it's like an old man, you know? It's so, so sad. Like, that's a guy that I would gladly give money and food to. 100%. 100%. I know. Ugh. It's very heartbreaking. It is. All around. Oh, you always make me heartbreak. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you always make me heartbreak. I don't know. I, that was the first thing that came to mind. Uh, 
<laughs> people gonna lose make, it. People gonna make fun of me now. You know that, yeah. right? Um, yeah, no, but you always do. You always find these things that like pull at your heartstrings. Do you think I had to read that paragraph? I had to try to not cry reading that. You know, I was having a good day, and now I feel bad about this old man. And think about Mario too, and all these guys. And Jermaine, I know. All these guys. It's it's so sad because when you read about the victims they were such good people right that's what i said before they do not fit this sinner type of like well you know air quotes scum of the streets or whatever that he was trying to eradicate eradicate. from new york (laughs) i know his neighbors saw him walking at night and they didn't know why he would do this but they warned him that it was dangerous Not wanting to share with them what his night strolls were really about, he told them that he just liked the peace at night. In the early morning hours of May 31st, Joe pulled a sandwich out of a garbage of a deli. It looked promising. He put it in his pocket to better inspect later. And he kept strolling. Next to the sandwich in his pocket was a piece of cardboard that read his name and address in case he forgot which he tended to do a lot those days. As Joe ambled past Cypress Hill Cemetery with his cane, the man who wanted to be known as the Zodiac stepped out of the shadows. He'd been waiting in the cemetery again. He followed Joe, which proved to be difficult, because the man walked slow. Seda had to be sure to walk slower. Once he reached Mount Hope Cemetery, which is at the end of the cemeteries connected to Cypress Hill, and the location of Franklin K. High School. Joe continued south to get back into Queens. So once you get to the end of the cemeteries, remember I said he's going all the way east. If you go just south of Franklin K. Lane High School, you're in Queens. Like you're in Woodhaven. Yeah. So this was something that Seda didn't know. So his intention was to leave that letter for the 7-5, and at the other scene, like he thought the seven five were the ones who were collecting all of these letters from him. He didn't know that this is not in the jurisdiction of the 75th precinct. Oh, this is great. Yeah. So Seda knew exactly what he'd been doing because he'd followed Joe before. He knew that he would walk the length of Jamaica Avenue all the way into Brooklyn, and then he would retrace his steps back into Queens. So he was basically following Joe back to his house. He stayed behind the man as he turned down Eldert Ave, and then he made a left down 87th Road, which was where he lived. It was on this street, the street where he lived, that Joe realized he was being followed. He tried to pick up the pace as fast as he could, but that was hard. Finally, he reached 7424, and he opened the waist-high wrought iron gate and began to walk around the side where his entrance was. He was going to make it. And then he heard the man who was right behind him say, Excuse me, can I have a glass of water? And this startled Joe. Before he had said anything, Seda had checked around to make sure no one was there. The coast had been clear. When the elderly man turned around, Seda felt confident that things were going to go his way. Joe muttered something to him about going inside to get water, and Seda asked him if he could come inside. He was now standing in the front yard with Joe. 
Joe asked him why he wanted to come inside, and he said, I'm cold. Joe asked the man, who was covered by a scarf, where he lived. When he said that he lived close by, Joe told him to just go home and get water then, and he began to walk away. Joe next heard him say, give me a dollar, but there's some discrepancy that maybe he might have said, I'll give you a dollar, but Joe heard it as, give me a dollar. Joe was nervous now. He thought this was a robbery. So he told the man that he didn't have any money on him or in the apartment. Joe went to walk away and Seda took out his zip gun and shot Joe in the back. The man instantly fell down. Seda then took out the letter that was neatly wrapped around three stones and walked away. Just then, a woman and a man walked outside of a house that was nearby, on the other side of the street. They were saying goodnight to each other. As the man got into his car, he and the woman saw Seda rush past them, kind of darting in between cars. They had heard the bang, and they both kind of thought to themselves without saying anything, that must have been the man who had shot, like some type of shot, but they didn't kind of, they tried to like not get involved with it. And they didn't see that Joe had been shot because from where they were standing, they couldn't see that a man had fallen down in a house across the street because there was cars blocking. Okay. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, obstructions. Because, yeah, the parking was all along the street. So if you, like, were to go down 87th Road, there's cars lined on both sides of the street. So there was no way that that couple would have seen Joe lying in the lawn. Yeah, there's no way there would ever be a parking spot available. Oh, no. <laughs> Surprise, kinda, that guy got a parking what, you spot. You know what it's like, actually? Uh, I picture it like, uh, I mean, you would only know, obviously, but where my mom used to live yes. uh, for a while in Queens. That's exactly what the street looks like. Right, exactly. That, like, yeah. literally cars from... from Side to side, all the way down. very narrow. Yeah. But one of Joe's neighbors did see what was happening. The man that lived in the second floor apartment had heard a gunshot. Curious, he looked out the window. The sound had been close. He saw Joe laying on the ground and a man dressed in all black walking away. As soon as he had seen the man start to round the block, he saw that he started running. So as soon as he left 87th Road, he started to, like, book it. Uh, once Seda felt like he was safe, he stopped and noted what had happened. Below the two other entries, he wrote, Third sign dead, May 31st, 1990, 204 a.m. White old man with cane, shoot in front of house. The 38 caliber tore through his back and perforated his kidney and lower bowel. The slug had exited his stomach. Joe dragged himself across the front lawn and up the steps of his house. He had banged on the front door, and his neighbors, the woman who lived on the first floor apartment and the man who lived on the second, came down to help him. The guy on the second floor already called 911 when he heard saw that Joe was down. He had thought Joe was dead. So they were both shocked that he was knocking, that he was still alive. That's crazy. So the two neighbors just really, all they could do was try to stop the bleeding until the ambulance arrives. Well, at least someone, geez, at least someone came to this guy's aid. Right. As Joe was being rushed to the hospital, he was speaking with police officers. 
His story continued to change. Unfortunately, and not just because of the shock of it all, Joe was not a good witness. He had horrible memory problems and his age was getting the better of him on a good day. So he really, like his story kept changing. Like the man talked to me, the man didn't talk to me. It was a robbery. It wasn't a robbery. Um, he actually didn't even want to go to the hospital. Now this is really sad. He, he said he was scared if he left his home, he would never come back. And unfortunately, he was correct in thinking that because a month later, Joe would die of his injuries in the hospital. Oh, that's really sad. He kept telling paramedics he just wanted an aspirin and to go home. That's sad. Those those old guys, like that generation, they were just built differently, though. Yeah. You know? So as Joe was undergoing emergency surgery, his neighbor folded the clothes that were taken off of him when the paramedics had been working on him. And she had folded them and left them on top of the steps of his entrance into the basement apartment. It was then that she noticed the note, which had been weighted down by three stones. This time, the Zodiac's letter had been found. Confused and scared by the letter, once she read it, she called the detective that had been asking her questions that night. So now three people had been shot at the hands of the Zodiac. A Scorpio, a Gemini, and now a Taurus. And when we come back, we're going to see that just like the man he looked up to, Seda was going to reach out to the media when he felt like the police were not taking him seriously enough. And many more would be attacked. And the attacks would only get worse. This is getting really good. Yeah. I mean, I, I these these victims are, like, it's just so sad because they're good people they're old people they're they're in bad situations and it sucks that that had well, to be the second one's 34 but that was just a crime of opportunity that's true it's just really really sad to see like good people get hurt like this or murdered you know after you know they haven't had the best of lives or you know just they're in rough situations yeah yeah i think that just goes to show to him uh, meaning Eddie Seda and the fact that he is kind of choosing victims that he knows he could attack and hurt because they are in vulnerable situations. So that just speaks more to him and this kind of like BS code that he has that he, like you said, isn't following up on because he's not ridding the streets of New York of drug dealers and prostitutes like the sinners that he says. It's it's people that aren't doing that. Yeah. I am excited for part two. I think it's it's only going to get more insane from here, and I'm and I'm excited to bring that second part of the story to you guys. I know so. I can't wait. <laughs> but before we go, we just want to thank our new Patreon supporters because we really appreciate all the support that you give us, and we hope that you're enjoying all of the extra benefits that you get for doing that. So we do want to say a huge thank you to Woman Interrupted, Brian Burnett. Lori Hensley upped her pledge. Leah Filberto did a annual pledge. So thank you so much. Christine Wadley, Pam, Carly Jones, Pointing Cat, Lexi Swearingen, Grace Ann Gannon, Kathy Gerhard, Michelle James, Sarah Peterson, Heathen Zoe, Hannah Osborne, Jay Patini, 
Courtney H. Laura A. upped her pledge from $2 to 5 Debbie Miller. BMC Skelly. Anne Duran. Linda Martinelli. Poppy Gale. Sophie Haworth. Karen Long. Erica Ornalis upped her pledge from 2 to $5. Deborah Turpin. Ariel Kelly. And Brandy Gutierrez. Thank you guys so much, and we appreciate everything you're doing. We hope you're loving the episodes, and we can't wait to hear what you think about this one. All right. Bye, guys. Take care, guys.